Thank you, JT. Praise team. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians as we uh, continue this study. Today we're going to think about what it means to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. My son, one of my sons works for Caterpillar. He's an engineer with uh, Caterpillar. And when he went to work for Caterpillar, at least when he went to work for them full time, one of the things that uh, he had the opportunity to see and begin to learn more about and something I'm sure that he's reminded of pretty regularly is what's called the Caterpillar Code of Conduct. They, like many corporations, have a corporate code of conduct. And at Caterpillar, the code, of pond, uh, the code of conduct, and I'm reading what they actually state in their code of conduct. It says, this code of conduct applies to the daily activities of the employees of Caterpillar. Each of us has a personal responsibility to read the code of conduct, understand what it means, and apply it consistently. Those in our company who lead others hold a special position of responsibility to set the example of what it means to, quote, live by the code. So at Caterpillar, at Caterpillar, if you're an employee of that company, you're called to live by the code. Google has their own set of corporate ethics, their own set of corporate responsibilities. And every Googler, by the way, that's what you're called if you work for Googler, Google, I don't know if you knew that, but if you work for Google, you're a Googler, okay? So every Googler agrees to serve our users, support and respect each other, avoid conflicts of interest, preserve confidentiality, protect Google's assets, ensure financial integrity and responsibility, and obey the law. Now, to help Googlers understand how to live that out, they add this in their code of conduct. It says, Google aspires to be a different kind of company. It's impossible to spell out every possible ethical scenario we might face. Instead, we rely on one another's good judgment to uphold a high standard of integrity for ourselves and for our company. We expect all Googlers to be guided by both the letter and the spirit of this code. Sometimes, they write in their code of conduct, identifying the right thing to do is not an easy call. If you're not sure, don't be afraid to ask questions of your manager or the legal or ethics and compliance office. And here's the next statement. And remember, don't be evil. If you see something that you think isn't right, speak up. I just was amazed at that statement. Okay? Now, you can read into my amazement whatever you want to. That's up to you. But that Google would actually have the audacity to say that there is evil, I was impressed. Because that's not necessarily something that I expected. My point in those two illustrations, from Caterpillar and from Google, is that even in the corporate world, there is a code of conduct. There are ethical standards that are set up in these corporations. Here at Westwood, our, I don't want to call it a code of conduct because that's not what it is. We talked about it in our membership class Friday night. We have a, we have a statement of faith that says this is what we believe, and we have a, a church covenant that says this is how we seek to live that out. So everybody that comes into membership of our church, whether you've been here a long, long time or just a short period of time, looks at that covenant and given the opportunity. In fact, it's a requirement for membership that you read the church covenant. And that covenant then just says, by God's mercy and grace, I've been led by the Holy Spirit to repent, to believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and have given evidence of this through public profession of faith, and I've identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through believer's baptism. And then each of the sections of the covenant goes on to spell out different Ways that we seek to live that out. And the latter section of that talks about how we seek to protect the unity. The unity of the church. And, and that part of our covenant says, you know, it's, it's really very straightforward. I'm going to walk in humility. I'm going to exercise patience. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to be thoughtful and courteous. I'm going to refrain from gossip. I'm going to speak and listen to only what builds up for the fellowship of the church. So it, it describes how we're going to seek to live that out. Why would we do that? I mean, why would we say there's a certain way that we should live if we claim to follow Christ? Well, obviously the reason we do that is because that's what Scripture does. How should we live in light of the gospel? 
And if you look at your sermon notes, I don't talk much about Greek grammar because I don't know much about Greek grammar. That's, you know, I try not to talk about things that I don't know very much about. But Greek grammar is important. I believe that the grammar is just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as the words themselves. I, I believe that. And so gramma- the, the grammatical structure within the word is important. That's why you need study Bibles and study helps and things like that. I encourage you to read the word with those helps there. It's especially true in the book of Ephesians. So my point in this is that there is in the Greek grammar, as there is in English grammar, verb moods. Okay, There are words that describe or structures in the grammar that describe what that verb intends for you to understand about who's doing it, why they're doing it, or how do we respond to that particular verb action. Specifically, there are indicatives and there are imperatives. That's the extent of your Greek grammar lesson for the day, okay? There are, there are indicatives and there are grammars, and there are imperatives. The imperative statements are things that we're supposed to do. The indicative statements are things that are facts, things that are being done, have been done, or will be done, okay? And in the book of Ephesians, as in a lot of Paul's letters, as in other parts of Scripture itself, that structure is really, really important because the indicatives are what we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. These are facts. These are things that are true, things that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. Starting in chapter 4, there are imperatives. What we should do in response to what the facts are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You understand? So, in other words, um, what one commentator said was, Christians, what Christians do is based on who we are in Christ. We obey because God has loved us and united us to himself by his son. And we are not united to God, nor are we to, nor do we make him love us because we've obeyed him. Our obedience is a response to his love, not a purchase of it. That's the way Brian Chappell puts it. So what I'm saying is the indicatives are foundational to the imperatives. What is the fact of the gospel is why we are commanded to do what Scripture commands us to do. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the imperatives start rolling at us one after the other after the other. And that has not been the case in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And I think the whole book of Ephesians can be summarized in the first sentence of chapter 4. Let's look at it together. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 4, chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I think that sentence summarizes the entire book of Ephesians. What Paul is writing is, I want you, I urge you to live according to everything that you've seen earlier in the book of Ephesians. I urge you as a prisoner of Lord, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that you that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I read the whole section there so we will understand the context of what it is that Paul is talking about, that this unity, this unity that is the focus here in the beginning of chapter 4, has certain characteristics. It looks a certain way and lives a certain way and behaves a certain way. And, and we'll take our time to, to work our way through this as we, as, we, as we do that. So just take for just a second and think about chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians and think about the indicatives. Okay, Think about the facts that Paul lays out for us that give us the foundation for what we're about to see in chapter 4. I mean, it starts all the way back in the beginning. I, I, you know, really, we could read it, but we're not going to clearly because it would take too much time for that. But it starts with the fact that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From before the foundation of the world, he determined to call us to himself, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's what he's done. That's what he's done. And so he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He's predestined us as sons and daughters. He says there in verse 5, through the blood of Christ, we've been redeemed. We have forgiveness for our trespasses, he says. We've received this forgiveness. We've obtained an inheritance. We've been adopted as his children. All of this is what God has done for us in Christ. It's just so cool to read that and be reminded of his grace. And it doesn't even stop there. In chapter 2, he does all this for dead people, right? He does this for us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so not just that, he makes us alive. And not just alive, but alive together with Christ, he says in verse 5. And he has seated us with Christ and raised us up into this spiritual realm with Christ. And it goes on in chapter 2 to describe then in verse 11 and following that we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he's taken those who were alienated and separated and hopeless, he says, and have brought us together in Christ. And how could he do that? By his blood on the cross. He himself is our peace, right? So all of these statements of fact of what God has done for us, that we're no longer strangers and aliens. Look, look there at what he says. We're no longer strangers and aliens. But we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are built on this foundation of Christ in the corner as the cornerstone and together as the church, together as Westwood. He's building us up into the spiritual habitation, his spiritual house. And Christ comes and takes up residence in our hearts and he begins to make himself home there. And together in individual hearts, he binds us together in the body of Christ as his spiritual dwelling place. That's what God has done for us. So what? How should we live in accordance to that? How do we walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling? That's what Paul begins to take up as we begin in chapter 4. So there's this call to unity. There's characteristics that are required in this walk of unity. There's this urgency to it. It's not something that just happens on its own. And there's a model for it. That model is God himself. And it's, it's a mysterious thing that he lays out for us here in, in verses 5 and 6. So let's think about this. There's a call, a definite call to unity. Now, Paul is the means by which God extends this call to us. He says, a prisoner of the Lord. And it's important. We talked about that a little bit, but I just want to touch on that for just a second. Later on, Paul's going to tell us to remember his chains. You see, what I love about this is Paul is not writing this from some safe comfortable, lazy boy recliner someplace. He's in prison. He's a prisoner for the Lord, under arrest in Rome. Maybe under house arrest, maybe just, maybe not. But he is under arrest in Rome. And he talks about a calling a lot because he sees himself as called. He sees himself as called by Christ and belonging to Christ. And so because he belongs to Christ... He can say, as he did earlier in the book of Ephesians, that he is a prisoner on behalf of others. His life is being poured out and lived out on behalf of others. 
And that's just so important for us to recognize that I think the credibility, okay, Paul has a lot of cred to call us to certain characteristics because of his own personal life, because of the way God is at work in his life. And he's just saying, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. One writer said this, genuine calling, and by the way, all of us are called, we're going to see this, genuine calling requires a willingness to forsake personal privilege. This is true whether the Christian is a pastor, a businessman, an athlete, an educator, or a mom. God may not require great sacrifice in our calling, but true devotion always is willing to dispense with privilege if God's glory requires it. Paul is not writing this from a privileged position. He's writing it from prison. There's an urgency to it. Things get serious when you're behind the bars. Priorities get clear. And Paul wants us to understand that. So Paul's saying, I'm called. I know the cost, okay? I know what it means to pay to follow Jesus because I'm in chains for your behalf, all right? There's a definite call. And this call then has a clear, it's a picture of a life that has been transformed. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And the word walk there is a lifestyle, okay? It's, it's not a lap around the track at Sandsbury. It's a life. And this walk, this walk of life, if you will, is what Paul tells us needs to be in a proper balance with the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The idea there, that idea of worthy, think of an old-fashioned scale. All right, you got an ounce of weight on this side and you get an ounce of seed on the other side. And it balances out. And he's saying our life needs to balance out with the gospel calling, with the truths of the gospel that God has given us. There needs to be a a proper correspondence between that. In the book of Philippians, Paul says that our lives ought to be worthy of or in balance with the gospel. He says in another place in Colossians that our lives ought to balance out with the Lord, worthy of the Lord. So clearly there's a corresponding lifestyle to the characteristics of Christ and the characteristics of the gospel that we see here. So that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And there's a worth there. There's a value there implied in that statement, too. The focus here is not on our worth. The focus is on the worth of the calling. Do you see that? Do you understand that? The worth of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's one, two and three in Ephesians. So the question that I've really been thinking about over the last couple of weeks and just working through in my own mind and in my study is what exactly is this call? Worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All right. There's a repetitiveness there. There's a structure there that wants us to focus in on this fact that God has extended to us a call. Now, we understand, I believe that that call from God is effective in that what he calls us to do, he will do. But just as there are all of these here but not yet aspects of the gospel, that's the case here as well. The calling that he's given us is that we've been called before the foundation of the world. We're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're adopted, we're made one in Christ, we're a new man in Christ, we're a spiritual structure being built up. All of that is a part of the call. But I think the call here can be summarized in two key words that we're going to see in chapter 4. One is unity, and unity is the subject down through verse 16. And then following in verse 17, purity is the subject. Unity and purity, I think, are two aspects of this. He has called us to unity, and he called us in Christ before the foundation of the world, he says in chapter 1, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We're called to unity and we're called to holiness. All of this, recognize, is based on what Christ has accomplished at Calvary. It's based out, based on what he's already done for us. So unity and holiness are a gift. Amen? It's, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. But holiness and unity are a goal as well. One of them is a spiritual reality. That we already have. The other one is a spiritual attainment that we work for. That's, that's how this works together. And so this call to unity that he gives us is one that has certain characteristics. Look at verse 2. What 
characterizes this this walk that is worthy of the gospel. Well, four things kind of are right there in verse two. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, and patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, what I want us to understand from the very beginning as we look at these is what they are not. They are not natural. They are not natural. Being humble and gentle, being patient and bearing with one another in love are not normal for humanity. They are not the default characteristics. Now, granted, we can have humble moments, patient moments. We can, we can put up with one another once in a while, but that's not what I'm talking about here. All right? These are not natural. These are supernatural. These are distinctive divine characteristics. Not only are they not normal, they're not valued. They weren't valued in Paul's day, nor are they today. In Paul's day, in the culture of Rome and Ephesus, if you were humble, you were looked on as weak. If In Paul's day, if you were gentle, that was looked on as a liability. In Paul's day, to be patient and bearing with one another was looked on as something to be avoided. The heroes, the politicians, those in Paul's day who were esteemed, were not humble. They were not gentle. They were not patient. They did not bear with others very well. They were proud. They were arrogant. <laughs> they were strong. And those were the characteristics that were esteemed. Humility, patience, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, are not characteristics of the kingdom of this world. They're characteristics of Christ. And we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize that they are supernaturally a part of who we are in Christ. Because they are a part of who we are supernaturally in Christ, they will be constantly opposed by our flesh, by Satan, and by the world. They will be constantly opposed. By, for Gerald being humble means that Gerald needs to die. The enemy, my flesh, and my culture around me are going to do everything they can to be sure that I am not humble, not patient, not long-suffering, and not willing to put up with you. That's the way it works. So that's why Paul says we have to be diligent, why we have to work at it. Consider humility for just a second. Humility literally means to be lowly or of a low position. And again, it wasn't esteemed in Paul's day, and it's not today. All right. Now, Paul adds a little word there that I think is really important. He says that we're to walk with all humility. It's, it's an inclusive term. And again, I think Paul is saying there, it's not that you just are, are humble, you know, when you're meeting with the mayor or humble when you're meeting with the president or humble when you're meeting with somebody who by nature might be more esteemed than you know. It's a characteristic that's to mark us. We're called to be humble. And this humility is that characteristic that requires that we be a new creature in Christ. I love what Tim Keller says. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or even thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Meaning my mind is not captivated by what I see in the mirror. So it's thinking of myself less, he says. And it's important to note that humility is the means by which we come to Christ in the first place. And what I mean by that is that one of the things that God says he hates and will absolutely oppose is pride. He comes against it. In 2 Samuel 22, David acknowledged this when he said, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. In Psalm 25, he said he leads the humble in what is right and he teaches the humble his way. Humility. What about gentleness? One commentator defined gentleness or meekness, it may be in your translation, as the quality of not being overly impressed with the sense of one's own self-importance. I like that. Not being overly impressed with the sense of one's self-importance. And again, this is a characteristic of Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's a direct reflection of our relationship with Christ. 
Is it not? Remember, when Jesus described himself, the only place we see Jesus specifically describe himself, he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and humble. That's how Jesus describes himself. And that's how we are called to exhibit that characteristic in our lives. Now, one of the things we struggle with is the idea that if we're going to be meek, we're also going to be weak. And that is not the case. This is not someone who is weak in that sense. This is someone who does not have to assert himself or dominate. Someone who's not always touchy or resentful or retaliatory. Paul says in Galatians that the gentle person bears someone else's burdens. He says in Titus that the gentle person is someone who is courteous, gentleness. What about patience and long-suffering? Because it's going to be translated both ways. It's really closely related to what comes next with bearing up with one another in love. Here's the thing I think that's so important for us to recognize about patience. It is one of the characteristics that God used to describe himself. This is what my God is like, Moses would say. Because when God chose to reveal himself to Moses and tell him what his names were, in Exodus 34, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's our God. And that's to mark his people of being patient and long suffering. And I don't know about you, but I think we have lots of opportunities to do that. Dr. David Garland, one of my prophets at Southwestern, put it this way. The close fellowship of a church supplies numerous opportunities to put this trait into practice. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Garland, for reminding us of that. For he says, for there we face people who are invariably difficult or offensive. Along with being gentle, the patient believer does not rush to give up or to get even. He went on to describe this patience as something that is active in a person. Making that person, he says, always prepared to meet his neighbor halfway and to share his life with him. That's what patience looks like in action. Another way to describe it and just to kind of pressing it a little bit further is the next one. When he says that we're to bear with one another in love or put up with one another. One, one, One person described it as being lovingly tolerant of one another. Now the idea of bearing up in the Greek language carries the idea of bearing something that's uncomfortable and even bearing something that is unpleasant or difficult. And it's talking about our neighbor. No, it's talking about me. I mean, let's just be real. (laughs) That bearing with one another implies that sometimes we endure one another, despite our differences and despite our frustrations. That's why Peter says that love covers over a multitude of sins. When we bear with one another in love, that's agape love. That is the active, self-denying love of Christ. That when we bear with one another in love, Peter says love covers over a multitude of sins. Here's the way I I think about this. If I had to put up with me all the time, me would have to die. Now, the first person that snickered at that was Susan. As it should have been. Seriously. She, She has to bear up with me. And I love you, baby, but I have to bear up with you, too. You know, I, I mean, we, we just do. We do. She puts up with me and I put up with her. And we're called to put up with one another in the body of Christ. That's the way the relationships work within the, the within the church. We bear with one another in love. So the truth that explodes off the pages to me in these four characteristics is that this doesn't happen because of some external structure. It doesn't happen because we have a code of conduct in our corporation. It doesn't even happen because we have a church covenant. It happens not because of something on the outside. It happens on the inside. It happens when there's a change in the heart. It starts there in the attitude of the heart. That's why earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul said that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith as Christ makes our hearts his home. Then our home, our heart become more like him, more humble, more patient, more long suffering, 
more willing to bear with one another in love. And it comes from eyes, I believe, that are turned up to the cross. Because when we see the patient, humble, long-suffering, bearing with us Jesus, hanging on that cross, bleeding and bearing the weight of our sin, that will kill pride. Right? You can't look up to the cross and feel any pride. And so that's, we just turn our eyes up. And when we look at the cross and see Jesus, then we are ready to begin extending that to others. Paul next says that after we understand that we, we bear with one another in love, then he says in verse 3, we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity is described both as spiritual, Holy Spirit inspired and birthed in us, and it is the bond of peace that Christ has already accomplished for us, he says earlier in the book of Ephesians, that Christ himself is our peace, but there is a diligence required to this. So here's another example of already but not yet. We already have peace. We already have unity. He has made us both one. But yet it is something that we're called to work for. We're something to maintain, to keep, protect. There's an urgency here, church. There's not a laziness to it. We can't fall asleep at the wheel and expect this to happen. I urge you, he says, there's a consistency to it. We're to make every effort. The idea there is there's a continual effort being poured out by us as we seek to strive to work for what it is Christ has already accomplished. There's a diligence required there. And so it's not something that we achieve in one sense, right? It's already been done for us. But it is something that we're called to, to attain. It is something that we're called to make real within the fellowship of ourselves. It's something that we're called to see as an urgent, consistent, diligent goal that we're to seek. Something we're to make an effort toward. I think about, I think about a soldier. I think about movies that I've seen of, of combat where one of those soldiers is called to be awake at night. We're going to take turns watching the perimeter of the camp. Because the well-being of my unit depends on me not falling asleep. There was a day in the American Armed Forces when if you did fall asleep, it cost you your life. Because you were putting the lives of your unit at risk. And the idea here of us being diligent, of us being awake and alert and watching the camp, watching the church, watching the relationships that goes on here is the idea that there's an urgency there. We have an enemy of the flesh. We have an enemy in Satan. We have an enemy of the culture who want to crush our unity. I mean, for crying out loud, guys, forgive me, Dempster, this is not in the notes, but Ben, you touched, I mean, you touched on it, Dan. I mean, as if we didn't have enough to divide us and put us into tribes with the last two elections we've had, then we have a pandemic that comes along. And we can't agree on shots or inoculations or spacing or masks or anything else. You get my point, right? There is a world full of things that want to attack our unity. And we have to fight. We have to work. We have to be diligent. We have to see the urgency of it, understand the value of it. To maintain that unity. Keep watch, Paul says. Keep vigilant. Why would we do that? Because the very character of God is what's being reflected in that. The very character of the Godhead. Look at what he says in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of commentators say that this is an early church confession. It's a statement of faith. It may even be some kind of doxology that they may have sung. There's seven times in here that the number one is used. Did you notice that? That's the emphasis that we see here. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You get the point? (laughs) One. It's this model of unity in the very Godhead itself. And this is what God is like. First, there is one body that is bound together by the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 4. One body and one spirit. Just as you were called, he says. So the Holy Spirit is the one who creates the body of Christ. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and indwells that individual believer and then binds us together as the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes Jews and Greeks, slave and free. What Jason read earlier out of, out of the book of Galatians, he's the one that binds us together as one. One body bound together by the Holy Spirit. He creates us. He fills us. He begins to coordinate us and gift us and orchestrate us, as we'll see later on in verse 4. Secondly, there's one hope that's based on Christ himself. This is talking about the Lord Jesus, all right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, it says there in verse 5. So what is he talking about there? What does it mean that we are one Lord, one faith, one baptism? Well, just imagine Jesus at the center. And everyone whose trust has been placed in Christ is of one faith, all right? That one faith that binds us together in Christ. That one faith is pointed to and directed toward and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one Lord. Remember what we studied in the book of Revelation. It centers on him. And that one faith then is exhibited, if you will, or made real in us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what baptism here is talking about. It says we have participated in one baptism. In the book of Galatians, Jason read this. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I don't think that baptism in there is talking about immersed versus sprinkled. It's the baptism that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in us as we come to Christ through faith. Yes, that's exhibited by baptism, but here it's talking about the baptism that the Holy Spirit does as he binds us together in Christ. So there's one Lord, and that faith is focused on him, so it's one faith. And there's one baptism that every believer shares, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, bringing us into that relationship with Christ. And because there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism, then there's unity in Christ. We may differ on a lot of things about the gospel that are non-essentials with other brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, okay? I remember that first trip to Bolivia. <laughs> I remember sharing communion that first trip to Bolivia with one group of believers that normally didn't get together with another group of believers. And they passed that communion cup, and I remember some of those brothers going, <coughs> as they took that cup. Because guess what? It wasn't Welch's grape juice. They love Jesus. They love Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Sharing that one Lord, that one faith, that one baptizing brings us one hope. All right? To the one hope that, to which, that belongs to your call, he says. I think Peter said it best in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's our hope. That's the hope to which we've been called. The hope that Christ was buried dead and has been raised. And because he is raised, our hope is alive. And our hope is forevermore alive in Christ. And Paul earlier in the book of Ephesians prayed, did he not, in chapter 1, that we'd have the spiritual insight to understand the hope to which he has called us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. That's centered on Christ. And finally, one family. One God and Father of all, he says, who is over all and through all and in all. So this whole picture centers on the paternity of God. We already saw that he is the father of every family. Every spiritual family in heaven and earth is named after him. And there's this emphasis on God being our father. He predestined us for adoption in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he says, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. So here's this picture of almighty God holding us and loving us as our father, but yet sovereign over all Absolutely, through all and in all, God is at work and he's seated on the throne. Isaiah tells us that the nations are a drop in the bucket compared to him. Literally, a drop on the scales. Even as we saw earlier about walking worthy. That God just blows the scales and the nations are gone. Like cleaning the dust off. He is over all. And he's our father. Because he's loved us and adopted us. And this unity then just brings us together in this shared identity in Christ. This unity is based on the reality of what God has done for us. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. This unity that we have in Christ is the reason we can sing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Amen? That's it.
It's on His blood and His righteousness. Let me just give you a couple of things to think about and apply in our lives. We'll spend more time on this as we get into this next section. My first application is this. Come to Christ. If your hope is not built on Jesus, you don't have any. You don't. Come to Christ. Have you made this confession that He is the Lord of your life? And have you placed your faith and your trust in Him? I mean, the Spirit... Is, is the one that this text tells us that baptizes us and binds us together within the body of Christ. This is our eternal family here in this room, church. This is our eternal family. The nature of relationship between me and Susan, between our moms and dads and our brothers and sisters, all of that is temporal. Oh yeah, we'll know them, we'll love them. I'm not getting into all that. I'm just saying we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And apart from Christ, you haven't got a family. And I invite you to come to Jesus today. God created you and loved you and wants you to be his child. And Jesus hung on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Come to Christ today. I invite you to do that. Secondly, as a church, as individuals, believers, this text calls us to stay focused on the gospel. All right? Consider the gospel as we consider these characters. What can I do to be a more humble person? Look to Jesus. Because as we look to Jesus, we're reminded, brother, you were dead. <laughs> There's no pride in that. God made you alive. Sister, you used to follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, and God was patient with you. You were alienated, separated, and hopeless, and God willingly crossed that distance and came near to you. How much does God have to put up with to put up with me? Well, when I see that and think on that and reflect on that, then I recognize that I'm called to put up with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm called to forgive as I've been forgiven. And I'm called to do that in spite of the fact that we're going to be disagreeing on a thousand different things. But we agree on Jesus. And that's our call. Focus on Christ. Third point, third application. Church, let's be hopeful. <laughs> We were called to hope. We worship the God of hope. Our Savior is raised in hope, right? So church, for crying out loud, let's be hopeful people. Oh, we should not be characterized by our downtrodden, discouraged, woe is me, the sky's falling characteristic that so permeates this world. That should not mark us as God's people. We worship the God of endurance and strength, who gave us his scriptures. Paul says in Ephesians 15, excuse me, in Romans 15, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, listen to this, in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that one voice of glorifying God is a, is a voice of hope. Be hopeful, church. And then finally, stay awake. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Your own heart and your enemy Satan and your hometown and your culture and your nation and this world that we live in wants to kill our unity. Don't fall asleep. Be on guard. Be diligent. Jesus has won this unity. He's paid for it with his blood. And just as it spells out in our church covenant that we're going to do all we can to, to, to endeavor to maintain that through, through God's grace, then I just encourage you in that. I'm going to pray in just a second. One final thing just to think about before you come to this table today as we come to the communion table. If there's anything that we've touched on in this passage that would just, the Holy Spirit would prompt you and say, wait a minute. There's unconfessed pride there. There's something going on there that I just encourage you to let the Holy Spirit do business with you as we come to this table. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is the message that we have heard from you. We've heard from John. We've heard it from Paul today. 
That, Lord, as we walk in the light, as you're in the light, we have fellowship with one another. As we walk with you, humble Lord, we're humble with one another. As we walk with you, we're patient with one another. As we walk with you, who are so long-suffering and willing to put up with our mess, that we are long-suffering and willing to put up with each other's mess. We pray for that today. I pray, Lord, for anyone that's never trusted in Jesus today, that they would come to Christ. Father, as we sing this song and as we prepare to come to the communion table, we pray that you would do a work in us and we ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand together and sing together.
seated. I've asked Dempster. Uh, Dempster's going to come and just lead us in our time of communion together. Brother Dan is going to come and translate for him. As he does that, as we're sharing our joint service together, I just wanted these brothers to have a part in the service as well. So, Dempster, you and Dan come. Thank you, guys. You didn't know you were going to have to work, did you, Dan? Good morning. Muy buenos días. Bueno, en primer lugar, quiero agradecer a Dios eh, por este privilegio que me da de poder estar entre ustedes. And first, uh, well, good morning. And uh, first thought I'd like to share is just a thank you for the privilege the Lord has given me to be able to share with you this morning. Sin más no recuerdo, fue en abril del año 2018 que estuvimos juntos. If I'm not mistaken, it was in April of 2018 that we yes. were together the last time. Así que, bueno. Bueno, la eternidad vamos a estar juntos. Yeah, that's okay. We'll, we'll eternity will be together. Así es. Eh, bueno, eh, si han entendido bien el mensaje del hermano Gerard, creo que no necesito eh, hacer reflexiones. If I understood well the, the, the preaching of Pastor Gerald this morning, I don't need to do much reflection over that. Pero vamos a, a tratar de meditar un poquito en lo que es este libro grandioso que encuentro en la Biblia de Cantar de Cantares. We're going to uh, try to reflect some on the, the great book that's included in the Bible, Song of Solomon. Eh, quiero invitarles, por favor, que vayan al capítulo 2. Vamos a dar lectura a los versos 2 y 3. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to, to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4, where you reflect a little bit on what that has to say to us. Y de paso agradecer porque el sermón lo teníamos todo escrito en español. I'd like to thank, in the meantime, by returning, I'd like to thank the church that we had the sermon uh, translated into English, or into Spanish, so we could, we could follow along well with that. Por eso no necesitaba de mi esposa, Magali está atrás con los hermanos. Yeah. So that's we didn't need our, my wife here this morning to translate. She could be back with the brothers. And Gracias, sisters. hermano. Thank you, thank you, Pastor. Bien. Vamos a dar lectura, por favor, a Cantares, el capítulo 2, versos 3 y 4, pero voy a meditar con ustedes solamente el verso 4. So we're going to go ahead and, and uh, read in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, but I'm just going to speak about and meditate on uh, chapter 4, or verse 4. Dice el verso 3, Como el manzano entre los árboles silvestres, así es mi amado entre los jóvenes. Bajo la sombra del deseado me senté, y su fruto fue dulce a mi paladar. Me llevó a la casa del banquete, y su bandera sobre mí fue amor. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Quiero que meditemos solamente en el verso 4. I'd like to meditate just a little bit over verse 4. Eh, como ustedes saben, Cantar de los Cantares en realidad es una parábola. As you know, the book of Song of Solomon is really a parable. Donde Salomón representa a Cristo. Where Solomon represents Christ. Y la Sulamita representa a la iglesia y al creyente en particular. And the Shulamite represents the church and in particular the believer. Entonces, con este pensamiento, con esta idea, vamos a tratar de meditar brevemente en el verso 4. So with that as background, with that understood, we're going to try to consider Ahora, a little bit of verse 4. El texto dice, la sulamita dice, me llevó a la casa del banquete. So in verse 4, the shulamite says, he took me to his banquet hall. Ahora, ¿qué significa esto? What does that mean? Ahora, en el verso 3, notamos que la sulamita había estado disfrutando de la presencia y de la comunión de Salomón. So we see in verse 3 that the Shulamite was enjoying, was delighting in the, in the presence of Solomon. Tal como ella expresa, bajo la sombra del deseado me senté, y su fruto fue dulce a mi paladar. So I already turned my Bible to the next verse, and so I'm not in, in Solomon chapter 2 anymore. 
Um, but it says that he was in the shadow, in his shadow, and, uh, and the joy that she shared there. You can ahora, read that in your own Bible. Ahora ella dice que es llevada por Salomón a la casa del banquete. And then it says that, that she was taken by Solomon to his banquet hall. Literalmente significa la casa del vino. Literally, it means the house of wine. Tal vez queriendo decir la casa del amor. And perhaps that means the house of love. Un ambiente más íntimo, más privado. Maybe a, a, an, amb, an ambiance that's more intimate and more private. Pero obviamente en el palacio real habían gente. But obviously in the royal palace there were people around. Esta casa de banquete nos da la idea de que eso era un lugar sólido en comparación con el árbol y la comida que también es variada. So the, the banquet hall does give us the, the understanding that it's a, it's a solid place. It's not under a tree anymore. And that there are a more varied amount of, of foods and uh, nutrition available there. Ahora, notemos que es el rey Salomón quien lleva a la casa del banquete a la Sulamita. So we do, we want to note that it's King Solomon that takes the Shulamite to the banquet hall. Él la lleva, él la, la trae. Yeah. He takes her, he, he escorts her. Ahora, ¿qué nos enseña esto? So what does that teach us? Como se han prestado atención al mensaje que el hermano Gerald estaba diciendo que en los primeros tres capítulos de Efesios son indicadores, ¿no es cierto? El, los verbos están en modo indicativo. So as we uh, listen to Pastor Gerald teach, we see in the first three chapters of Ephesians that there's, these are imperative verbs. There, there are things that are done. Y a partir del capítulo 4 en adelante son modo imperativo, ¿verdad? And then from chapter 4 onward, it's more operative. Entonces, hay cosas que Dios ha hecho por nosotros. So there are things that God has done for us. Hay cosas que Cristo ha hecho por nosotros. There are things that Christ has done for us. Nos toca a nosotros responder a lo que Dios ha so now it's our duty to respond to those. There are things that God now requires of us. Vemos que la es por a esta mesa, a esta casa del so here we see that the Shulamite was taken by King Solomon to the banquet hall. La idea aquí es que el creyente, al tener contacto con el Señor, al tener comunión con Dios, también es llevado a la casa del banquete. So the idea is that the Christian, when he's in touch with the Lord, is also taken to the banquet hall. He is, he is brought to the place. Cuando la sulamita estaba bajo el, man, bajo el debajo del manzano, ella disfrutaba de delicias mancianas, por así decirlo. Yeah. So when the shulamite was under the, the, the tree, the apples, and we could say that she enjoyed what the apples provided. Pero ahora es llevada por el mismo rey a esa a esa mesa, a esa casa de banquete, para disfrutar de variado alimento espiritual. But then she is taken, or now she is taken to the banquet hall by the king, yeah, and she is presented with additional options, There's varied uh, options of food to be had. Y lo que Dios quiere, hermanos, es que nosotros disfrutemos de su presencia. What the Lord desires for us, brothers and sisters, is that we enjoy what He provides for us. Dios quiere que nosotros avancemos en nuestra comunión con Él. He desires that we would advance or, or uh, grow in that intimacy with Him. Cuando leemos la Biblia, nos vamos a dar cuenta de que vamos a ver ejemplos, hay muchos ejemplos, donde hombres y mujeres fueron llevados, por así decirlo, a la casa del banquete por el mismo Señor. As we read the Bible, we see examples, and many examples, <coughs> excuse me, of people who are taken by the Lord to a banquet hall, to a deeper relationship. Por ejemplo, en Lucas capítulo 2 encontramos dos casos. In, for example, in Luke 2, we have two examples. El caso de Simeón. In the, the case of Simeon. Aquel que realmente esperaba la consolación, ver la consolación de Israel. He truly waited for, waited to see the consolation of Israel. Él deseaba he, he desired ver al Mesías. To see the Messiah. La sulamita se sentó, se sentó al lado del deseado. And the Shulamite desired to be with the king. En su deseo, Simeón uh, fue llevado por el Espíritu Santo al templo y pudo contemplar a Jesús. Yeah. And Simeon was able to uh, be taken to the temple and to contemplate uh, the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Otro ejemplo, Ana. 
Another example would be Anna. Quien servía a Dios en el templo por más de 84 años con ayunos y oraciones. Example is Anna who, who was at the temple serving faithfully 84 years with fasting and prayer. Ella deseaba ver al, al Mesías. She desired to see the Messiah. ¿Qué hizo Dios? Le llevó a la casa del banquete. And what did God do? He took her to the banquet hall. Ella fue testigo ocular de el, del niño Jesús, pero esto le capacitó para hablar a otros acerca del cumplimiento de Dios. So she was able to see with her own eyes the Messiah and then was provided for, I can't think of the right word, to testify to others about what she had seen and heard. Pero el ejemplo más glorioso, the more, most glorious example, está cuando el Señor toma a Pedro, Juan y Jacob when, when, y los lleva al monte de la transfiguración. Yes, when, when Christ takes the three disciples uh, to the Mount of Transfiguration. Esa experiencia marcó toda su vida. And that experience marked the rest of their lives. Dios quiere llevarnos a la casa del banquete. The Lord wants to take each of us a to the banquet hall, to his banquet table. Y finalmente, para terminar, and finally, uh, in closing, la dice, no solamente me llevó a la casa, a su casa de banquete. And the Shulamite says, he didn't just take me to his banquet hall. La Shulamita dice, su bandera sobre mí fue amor. She says that his banner over me was love. ¿Qué quiere decir con esto? What does that really mean? ¿Qué significa esto? What does that signify? Lo puedo resumir de esta manera. I think I can resume it in this way. Salomón, o a Salomón, no le, imper, no le importó si todo el mundo se entera del amor que él tenía hacia su amada, la Sulamita. Solomon was not concerned one bit that the rest of the world uh, saw or understood about his, lo his love for the Shulamite. Como dije, en el Palacio Real, había otra gente. Yeah. As I said earlier, in the, in the royal palace, there's there other people around. Así que él expuso su amor hacia la Sulamita públicamente. So he expressed his love to the Shulamite in public. De una manera muy especial. In a very special way. ¿Qué hizo Cristo en la cruz? What did Christ do on the cross? Al morir, uh, dying, su vida, he did, and giving his life, expuso públicamente su amor por su novia. he exposed publicly his life for his people. Él quiso que todo supiera que de todo lo que ha creado, su iglesia, su novia, y el creyente en particular, es alguien especial. He showed the world that the church, the, the, the believer individually, is someone special. Así que cuando miramos en la cruz, so when we look at the, at the cross, debemos mirar la bandera del amor de Cristo. We should look at the banner of love that is Christ. Su cuidado y su protección. His care and his protection. Pero también but also, debemos mirar we should also look lo que él hizo. and see what he's done. Un solo pueblo. One group, one body. Derribó aquella pared de separación entre judíos y gentiles. And he, divide, he divided, the, he took away the dividing wall between the two, uh, the two groups. Hizo un solo pueblo. He made one, one people group. No más esclavos. No more slaves, no more Greeks, no more, Greeks, no more, Judeos, no more Jews, un solo one group, one people. Y Dios lo hizo. God did it. En el espíritu, en el vínculo de la paz. Y Dios por eso nos pide a nosotros que guardemos la unidad en el espíritu, en el vínculo de la paz. Yes, and that's why it says he did it with the, in the bond of peace, or to guard, or to protect that unity or peace that we have. Porque tenemos un mismo Señor. Because we have one Lord. Una misma fe. One, the same faith. Un mismo bautismo. One baptism. Un mismo Padre. One, one Father. Sobre Father todos. of all. Over all. Por todos. For all. Y en todos. And in all. Somos un solo pueblo. We are one people, one body. Que el Señor a cada uno de nosotros nos haga reflexionar. Él nos invita en esta mañana a participar de la mesa de banquete que ha sido preparada por Cristo.
May the Lord help us to, re- to meditate and reflect on this and understand it, that he has provided one table for all of us to participate. El vino que vamos a beber the wine that we will take, that we symbolizes the blood that he shed for you and for me on the cross. Y el pan que vamos a comer simboliza su cuerpo inmolado en la cruz. And the, the bread represents his body which was hung on the cross. Disfrutemos de la mesa del banquete. Let's enjoy the banquet table that he's prepared. Y terminemos con esta convicción que Dios en Cristo ha levantado su bandera de amor sobre nosotros. We finish with this thought that God in his love has erected over us the banner of love which is Christ. Y seamos solícitos en guardar la unidad en el espíritu y en el vínculo de la paz. May we be vigilant to preserve the unity of the faith and peace. Y gracias hermanos por invitarnos para estar juntos un momento en este día. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for inviting us to join you in this occasion. Que el Señor les bendiga, hermano. God bless you.